Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here. If I haven't met you yet, I think, I think most everyone I know, but if you're new or if you're new online, I'm Josh, one of the pastors. And we, are, as been said, we are uh, headed into our summer series through the parables of Jesus. So our teaching team is going to take different parables during the different weeks and, and uh, speak to um, uh, teach on those and, and the issues that arise from those. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. So you can turn there, we'll have it up on the screen or flip on your device or whatever you're going to do. Uh, before, before we land there, because it's a, it's a teaching, Jesus taught two parables in succession on the topic of prayer. And so we're going to talk about prayer today. And because that's important, prayer's important uh, because Jesus talked often about it. And it's interesting that as his apprentices followed him around in his ministry, prayer was the only thing that's recorded in the scripture that his followers specifically asked him to teach them about. So they saw him interacting with his father and said, teach us how you do that, how to pray, how to talk to God. Now, as, as, uh, as, we, as we consider that, before we dig deeper into the issue of prayer, uh, I, I do want to po- possibly name an elephant that's in the room uh, when we talk about prayer. As, as we all know that recently our nation suffered uh, another shooting tragedy uh, from the shooting in Texas. And when we talk about prayer, sometimes that can actually be triggering for those of us that have either experienced trauma or, or seen traumatic events play out. And it seems sometimes, not all the time and not for everyone, but sometimes what the church has to offer is platitudes of I'm offering prayer. And that's almost a cover for inaction. And so as we talk about prayer, what I, what I specifically don't want to do is have in the back of our mind Prayer is another excuse for not doing our job as Christians. I don't want to approach prayer as a cover for inaction. Uh, in fact, because there's some specific things in the scripture that God says about using our piety as a cover for inaction. So I just want to put that out there because I think right now we are all really still reeling from these tragedies that have happened. Buffalo, you know, California, Texas and so on. And when we talk about prayer, I think we have to be wise in how we talk about prayer, especially to people who are not maybe inside the church, maybe, maybe those that are watching in the world, okay? So I was, I've actually been reading up on gun violence and, and some things that I'm, I'm sure a lot of us really have as we follow the news. But uh, I, I read a specific book recently uh, by a, a woman named Taylor Schumann uh, called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. And Taylor Schumann uh, was a gun violence victim. She worked at a college where uh, a young student came in, charged into the office, saw her first, shot her. She suffered significant uh, harm to her face, arm. Um, her, her left hand has, is still mostly inoperable or, or un, unable to f- regain full, full use. And so this book is her journey through the traumatic events of that and her journey into advocacy for victims of gun violence. And so her, her, uh, the title of her book is brilliant, When Thoughts or Prayers 
aren't enough. She says this in her book, seeing my fellow Christians remain silent as violence ripped at the fabric of our communities and survivors were wielded as political footballs increased my pain exponentially. To those who should have seen me most deeply, I felt invisible. That's why I don't look, want to look away from the pain of other victims, survivors, or families. This pain deserves to be seen. Someone has to look and really see. Someone has to remember because no one should feel forgotten. Someone has to decide that enough is enough. This pain has to be used to propel us to a better future. So when, when tragedy happens, we so, we, we so want to say something where we express disapproval at the tragedy and our solidarity with victims and their families and local communities and so on. So often we're at a loss. Just, I, I feel myself as these things happen time and time again at a loss to know what to, to say, especially on social media, especially on like just expressing myself as a, as a Christian leader. And so, it, how many of us have been, do not identify yourselves, it's not that kind of church service, but how often have we posted thoughts and prayers? Thoughts and prayers to the victims and their families, and then that's it. Because a lot of times, we, that's all we know. That's all we know what to do. And so, Taylor Schumann is advocating for something beyond that, something past that, something where the tragedy, we, we, that propels us into greater activity. Okay, and yet um, the victims often, when they see that happen, grow frustrated. And so, so it's easy, uh, it's it's difficult to sit in that tension of I I want to do something, I don't know what to do, so so I'll just post to show uh, support or whatnot. Now, if all we do is that, if all we do is offer our platitudes, God has some really some really clear opinions. And, and really, his opinions are the only ones that matter when it comes to this. But he has some really clear th- opinions on that. 700 years before Jesus' ministry, the prophet Isaiah thundered out to the nation of Israel who thought that their piety could cover for injustice that they were perpetuating. The people were saying, hey, God, aren't we praying and aren't we fasting? Aren't we doing all the right religious things? And so why aren't you moving and why aren't you blessing us? Out of that, Isaiah 58, verse 6 and 7, isn't this the fast that I have chosen, God says? Isn't this the outward piety that I really want you to have? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the cords of, of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke. Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your home, to clothe the naked when you see them, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now, <laughs> in our current partisan political uh, schema, that seems very Marxist. It seems very like collectivist, cons- uh, uh, communist, you know, you get you all sorts of labels in our day and age, but God really cares about his people who are walking in righteousness and doing acts of justice and not letting their righteousness supposedly cover for letting things perpetuate that they themselves in his grace have the power to change. So God has really strong thoughts on how we are to follow him in the brokenness of our culture, okay? And yet, and yet, we don't wanna give in to the cynicism of our world that says prayers don't matter, that says church 
Meeting on Sundays, worshiping together doesn't matter. What only matters is what you do to help victims. We actually don't want to fall prey to only outward shows of posting the right things on social media unless we get canceled or showing up to all the rallies but neglecting our internal life before the Lord. And the good thing is that we don't have to choose. Our world wants us to choose. Either have platitudes and do nothing because all that matters is our individual righteousness or only show up and do social justice type things and all that other God stuff is personal and private and don't shove it into my face. And, and those are false dichotomies anyway. Are you guys following me? You, do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. What we want is to navigate this tension where we carry our hearts before God because our voice really does matter to him. You have an audience with the creator of the cosmos, and your voice moves his heart, and that really matters to him. When he, he says, when you ask, I will do more. So that matters in our world. And showing up and doing justly matters in our world too. Having only right words to prayers and then not showing up is not as powerful as praying into the problems of our world and showing up and putting our feet and our resources and our time into those problems that we face. We want to do both to follow Jesus, okay? So as followers of Jesus, that tension, he, he elucidates this in Luke 18. The, the parables, by the way, for anyone that maybe you don't know what a parable is, we, we had the, on our Slack channel, it's like we, had, we were going through the different designs. We had like two bowls as, as a back, backdrop to the design, like a pair of bowls. Or like Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, like a pair of bowls, right? So... That's a parable for, for the uninitiated is a story with, with a, that, that illustrates a deeper truth, okay? It's more than a, a moralistic teaching. It's more than, than a myth or, or some kind of ethical uh, uh, thing that you have to come, uh, come to at the end. It's, it's how Jesus told and instructed most of the people that followed him. He told stories, to reveal truth. They, they lived in a, they didn't have a lot of writing in that culture. They had stories that they ter- told because they were, they were an auditory or an oral culture. And so they could more easily pass down these stories that were told to each other. So he grew up t- 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 hearing and then teaching in story form to teach people what the kingdom of God was really like and to reveal to them ways in which they had uh, assumptions about the kingdom that fell short of what it really is. So in Luke 18, Verse 1, he, he first tells the story of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. So if you have your Bible, that's maybe a title that it even uses. That's what the story is known as. It says this, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will, sit, I will see that she gets what justice, so she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Jesus said, listen to the, what the, the unjust says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out day and night? 
Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So this is an interesting parable to me because Jesus sets out and he tells them, he, the writer of the gospel, the gospel of Luke, tells us really clearly why Jesus teaches this. And at the end, Jesus actually marries prayer and justice together. You don't often see that. You don't often actually hear that taught in the church where, where personal piety, like our individual relationship before God, our connection with God is, is married so much, so closely with acts of justice given from the hand of God himself. So this is, this is a really great and rich parable. So Jesus says, that once again, he, he, or, or Luke says about Jesus, he wants to, to, to his disciples, his followers, his apprentices to know that they should always per- persist in prayer and never give up. To pray always and to not stop. Okay? And in the story, the story is about this judge who does not care about anything or anyone except himself. And there's this widow that has no one to advocate for herself. In, in, that, in the ancient Near East, uh, a, a widow's sustenance really came from her immediate family. So the assumption here is that she's got no sons or daughters to take her in to their family to care for her. In, in that culture, unfortunately, women didn't have a voice. They couldn't go to court. They couldn't testify. They couldn't do any of those things. So she has one thing and one thing only, her voice and her persistence in using her voice to get this judge's attention. So the judge says, listen, I don't care about this woman at all. I don't care about the law. I only care about myself. And this woman is driving me crazy. And so unless she gets really like, you know, persistent, because men love calling women crazy, you know, that's a thing. Like that's, that's it's a pejorative that, that some think to themselves. But he's thinking that, and he's thinking, unless she comes and, and really does something violent, I better step into this and, and give her what she wants. That's how she gets her way. Now, the thing is, um, I could see her at first, right? Being all polite and docile. Excuse me, mister, excuse me, sir, your honor. I, I, I beg to differ in this case. Can you please listen to me? She gets a little bit more persistent, a little bit louder, shows up maybe instead of every other day, starts showing up every day, a couple times a day. She really puts the pressure on him until he finally moves, until he finally acts, okay? If you're a parent, you've actually lived through this. I can tell you the, the parable of the innocent toddler and the frustrated parent what it is about kids that become thirsty theologians. Like, hey, Dad, I'm thirsty. You, what? I just got you a drink like 30 minutes ago. Hey, Dad, do you think God's lonely? Like, oh, man, that's a good question. How much time do we have? I don't know. Like, how do I even answer that? And this is my job, right? Like, kids just have this way of like, hey, Mom, 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 Mommy, Mama, Mom, 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 right? The persistent toddler and the frustrated parent. You know it, backwards and forwards. But yet there's a twist in this particular story because Jesus is teaching us something about the father that isn't at the, at, the, at the start apparent. And that's the fact that God is not an unjust judge. Yes, persistence is necessary, but God is unlike the unjust judge. He's not like him. Yes, we are to learn persistence in prayer. And it, Jesus imagines the gap between a good, kind father wanting to give good gifts to his kids 
and us in our reality not seeing that happen just yet in our time, in our way, the way we want it or expect it or assume it. So Jesus says to, to follow me is to follow me into the tension of knowing the truth about God, but not quite seeing the reality of the kingdom of God manifest in your midst just yet. What's required? Persistence. A persevering faith that shows up day after day after day. God is not an unjust judge. God is not a frustrated parent. God is a good father who loves to give gifts to his kids. And in that tension of not quite seeing that happen for us, time and time again, Jesus says, come and knock again. Keep showing up. Keep persevering in, in, in the grace of God. All right? So Jesus asks, ends the story by asking two questions. The first is rhetorical. Because God is good, will he not bring about justice? Will God not act on behalf of his family? of his sons and his daughters. So it's rhetorical because, uh, of course, a good father will act on behalf of his kids. The second question that Jesus asks is meant to be wrestled with. When I return, because I'm going away, he's saying, I'm going away, and when I come back physically to this earth, will I still find faith here? In my absence, will your hearts grow cold, church? Or in my absence, will you grab a hold of the grace that's available and keep persisting in your faith, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't see it, even when people are being their worst selves to you, will you still keep believing and asking and seeking and knocking? Okay? So there's another story that Jesus tells that is a compliment towards this. And in verse 9, this is the parable of the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Some of your subheadings will say that. Verse 9, to some who will co- were confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. So again, he's teaching his disciples, and he notices there are some who believe in themselves more than anybody else or even in God. They believe in their own standing, their own ability to do for themselves than what God is able to do on their behalf. So he teaches them this second story, this second parable. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified in right standing, in other words, before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus oftentimes likes to do this thing where he reverses the roles. It's, a, it's kind of a bait and switch that he does to his listeners. So he sets up these two guys. The Pharisee in their culture would be seen as the super extra religious, close to God person. And of course, that the Pharisee is the hero of the story in, in the way that his listeners are hearing Jesus set him up, them up. And this tax collector is seen as this sellout. 
Tax collectors have, have been in partnership with the Roman government. Uh, remember, in the, 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 Jesus' day, Israel was, was under Rome's power, under Rome's thumb. They couldn't go where they want, do, they want, uh, do, uh, do what they wanted, buy what they wanted. They had to ask Rome's permission. They were looking forward to the Messiah coming and throwing off the Roman rule. And the tax collector was the person that partnered with the, Ro- with the Romans against their uh, Israelite brothers and sisters to, to take their, their hard-earned money away and to, to skim off the top as well for themselves. They were seen as, as crooks, as liars, as sellouts, and so forth. And Jesus, what he does is he says, yeah, it's not how you perceive it to be. The Pharisee is actually not the one who, who is close to God. And it's evident by how he prays, by how he compares himself to everyone. By how he sees everyone else around him and says, see this tax collector? God, I thank you that you didn't make me to be like him. But it's the tax collector that actually is the one that shows himself to be close to God in the way that he prays. That he won't even come near. That he carries around the awareness of of his identity as a tax collector. And he hangs his head. And all he has is a contrite prayer that says, God, just be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm lowly. I'm aware of that. And I need your help to make it through another day. Jesus reverses the roles. And he says this in the very end. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. For every Pharisee that thinks they're in right standing on their own before God, those people will be humbled. And everyone who who humbles themselves voluntarily before God, God will give grace and lift them up in his power. It's quite a phenomenal story. If you think about it from from the perspective of of a first century Jew trying to figure out who Jesus is and and how he represents God. Because remember, Jesus is perfect theology. He goes around correcting everyone's theology because he says, as you've seen the Father, you've seen, as you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is exactly like me, is what he says, and that's what gets him killed. That's what, that's what gets him rejected from their religious culture is they couldn't understand God being fully God and fully in the flesh as a human being at the same time. And Jesus just goes around and says, yeah, everything that you see me doing, my father is active in doing as well. Every, every person I draw near to in their brokenness, that's the father drawing near to them in brokenness as well. Every Pharisee, you see me correcting their theology and saying, I don't think you have it exactly right. Or Jesus didn't actually say that. He said, I know you don't actually have it right. He didn't have to think too much about his theology. He was perfect theology, okay? So Jesus says, it's not the man born into privilege. It's not the man born in the, who's close to God that, that has a certain amount of zeros in the bank account. It's not the man with the right clothing. It's not the, right, the man with the right pedigree. It's those who have a humble and contrite heart. So Jesus is here teaching about humility and what it takes to actually draw near to God and how God respond in a way that welcomes sinners into his midst, okay? So... Um, when we, when we talk about persistence and humility, oftentimes these two things seem at odds. So what is it? What is God trying to teach us? Be bold, be persistent, don't take no for an answer, or is it humility? Like just hang your head and draw back and don't assume too much. And as it is in the kingdom, it's yes to both of those things. 
He's trying to teach us a, a don't take no for an answer as we draw near to him and press into him, that there is more to God than we're ever aware of. And as, as our, our, the hunger in our heart is cultivated, we can say thank you and more please to God. And at the same time, that, will, that cultivates a humility in us to receive from him whatever he decides to put in our hands. That we live open-handed, not closed-fisted, so that God can put anything into our hands that he wants and he can think, take anything out of our hands that he wants. Because whatever that thing is that we're hoping for, God is actually our exceeding great reward. It's not a better job or a bigger house or a better car, although those things are, are great and there's nothing wrong with any of the, those things, except if we start to grow, draw our hand closed around them and they're not actually in use to God anymore, they're more in use to us. They serve our purposes and not his. So God is trying to teach us persistence and humility at the same time. We need persistence because Following Jesus is no picnic. No matter what you grew up believing, or even what other Christians tell you about how you should live a happy life and God exists to bless you, like, this is not a picnic life. It's a life of surrender. I like picnics too, by the way. I like good barbecues. I had good barbecue in Kansas City this weekend to the glory of God. It was amazing. But, but this life of apprenticing Jesus is not a picnic. It is death to self. It is the man of, of the cross saying, come and follow me, take up your own cross. So we need persistence, especially in a culture that says indulge yourself, that this life is all about you. There are a multitude of trials that will not make sense in the moment and may, may not even make sense in this lifetime until we meet Jesus face to face and get to ask him about what we went through. This, this life of apprenticing Jesus requires that we have persistence in the face of all of those things. And primarily because he is most interested in cultivating a relationship with you that forms the character of his son in your life. And that takes persistence, it takes a perseverance of letting things go, of surrendering, and saying yes to God and no to my sin so that the character of Christ is formed in me, so that I become more loving and more kind and more sacrificial, that my life becomes good and true and beautiful just like Jesus's was. You know, we're bombarded, I think I've said this probably half a dozen times, we're bombarded with so many messages day after day after day, a, a light iPhone user or a smartphone user, like a light, like every once in a while you pick it up, sees f at least 4,000 advertisements every day. Just scrolling, you know, seeing what the influencers are doing, seeing, you know, what your sister is vacationing, you know, what she's wearing, all that stuff. Like we see in it intermittently uh, advertisements that say travel here, buy this, wear this, you'll be happier. Life is all about you. If your life isn't like this, why aren't you buying our product? And it leads to this cold cynicism of, yeah, God, why, why is my life not like all these people that I see on TV or, or, or on Facebook? Like, like, why don't I have a good life like that? You're bombarded with, with and, and by the way, if you're a heavy iPhone user, you see about 10,000 ads. 
So anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 ads a day telling you that your life sucks and if you did something different and it cost you a little bit of money, maybe a little bit more than that, okay, more than that, you could have a great life too. You're bombarded with that day after day after day of a message that turns it inward and you grow cynical and poor and broke, quite frankly, if you indulge yourself in that kind of lifestyle. So it takes persistence to, to resist that. To, and I'm not saying, I mean, I have an iPhone, guys. I'm not saying don't use these things unless you're not, you can't, you're not supposed to. I'm not saying you have to like totally live in a bubble, but what I'm saying is it takes persistence to say, no, there's a better way to live than that. I can see that and I can reject that because I'm living for a greater reality, okay? It takes persistence day after day and then to teach your kids how to live that way too, okay? And all of this um, at the same time develops this humility when we resist it and say no to that and yes to whatever God has for me, it develops humility in our life. You know, C.S. Lewis, I'm reminded, said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not developing necessarily a self-deprecating sense of humor, although that is pretty funny. It's not, it's not just putting yourself down like I'm just a worm, God doesn't care about, it's not that. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's going about your day and, and, and after, week after week realizing my primary consideration when I make decisions is not my comfort. It's not even how much it costs, it's does God want this for me? Humility, the, the, the character of Christ means there, there is a solution to this self-centered lifestyle that our culture wants us to have, where at the, the end of the day, you can realize, you know, I checked in with God on that decision before I even thought about myself. And th- there's, a, there's a lifestyle you're invited into that's true and good and beautiful, where that actually becomes second nature in your connection with God, that you persist in prayer so much and so often that you're checking in with him at different points of the day and it just becomes supernaturally natural. God's goal in developing humility in us is not, again, to become more self-deprecating or that we never accept any accolades or prizes or anything that we have had dutifully won or deserved. It's placing God first and at the center. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, this is the first and this is the greatest. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. To put the first commandment first place in our lives means that we're developing humility, the character of Jesus in us. So the bombardment with the messaging that says life should be easy, fun, and about fulfilling your every desire runs exactly counter counter to Jesus' message that we can expect difficulty in this life. And the point of life is actually finding fulfillment in God himself. But, and here's the good news for all of us, when we find our fulfillment in our creator, we will work according to our design, to the way that he made us and find fulfillment and flourishing we so desire. When we put God first, all of that other stuff comes in anyway. He said, it's my, it's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom, right? So when, when, he, when we put him first, the kingdom comes with him. Persistence and humility actually work in tandem to bring us closer to God and the fulfillment we really want. 
when we work through and persist in the issues of life, God forms the character of Jesus in us. We become, like I've said, more kind and more loving, more humble. And when we have more humility, we lean into God more and more for his grace, particularly in praying for his will to be done on earth in this life. So uh, at this point, I know many of us, when we talk about prayer and we talk about persistence, we usually think of like, but what about pain and suffering in this life? Like nobody actually likes that. Nobody enjoys that. Nobody's looking for that. So where is God in the midst of this? If we're supposed to persevere through all this stuff, what does it say about God himself? Because I think one of the most effective apologetics against the goodness of God and his being all powerful and so on is a lack of answered prayer. And I think we have to address that. We don't want to ignore that. We are wrestling with that in real time in our lives. So what are we supposed to do with the suffering? And uh, I recently read this book that was just so phenomenal. It's actually one of the, I think it's considered one of the top novels of the 20th century. It's called Silence by Japanese writer Shishuku Endo. And he addresses this question, the whole novel, is this really simple, beautiful prose, and it follows the story of this Portuguese priest named Father Rodriguez as he travels to Japan. Japan at that time in the novel, it's a historical fiction, basically. That time in the novel, all the priests and all the Christian leaders had been expelled from Japan, and there was heavy persecution going on. And so he's traveling to Japan because there's all these secret, silent uh, uh, Christians that are scattered all over the country. He goes to find them, to encourage them, and he's also going to find one of his former mentors, a priest who has uh, uh, disaffected, who, who had renounced his faith, supposedly. And he wants to go and find out for himself what had happened. So Father Rodriguez travels silently across the country, and he's watching all of this suffering go on, just from the grinding poverty and then also from the persecution that's happening at the hand of, of the, the, the Japanese uh, governmental leadership. And he's asking these questions of God as he's going on. Why God? Why is there this suffering? Why are people who are, or, are devout and they're following you, why uh, do they suffer this immense amount of, of pain and trauma? And why, in the midst of this God, are you so silent to all of us? Now, he's, he's then wrestling with his own doubt as he's watching this happen. And he's coming slowly and slowly to the realization that his capture and his own uh, uh, violent uh, end is imminent. And he's wrestling deeply with God. And at the end of the story, he sort of just surrenders himself to that. He, he understands, like, God is here in the midst of this. And, and in the story, and I won't give it away if you have, I mean, it's like, decades old, so I won't be spoiling anything. You've had your, your moment to read it. But at the end of the story, he makes his own peace with this silence and suffering. He makes his own peace with not being able to understand it all, but actually just finding connection and finding meaning in the midst between other believers in that. And in the very uh, end moments of the story, he finds it's, it's that God meets him there in his moment of greatest need. So he doesn't have all of his questions answered. He doesn't have uh, every, everything to, to explain it, to make it make sense. But what he finds is great peace in connection with the other believers and a meaningful encounter with God himself at the end there. And that's my conjecture. That's my, 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 that's my own 
comfort in this is that Jesus is the only one that makes suffering meaningful. Everyone in our world today has questions about why is God silent? Why does suffering happen? And it's only in the Christian faith, the God who went to the cross and suffered among us and suffered for us, that any meaning can truly be brought out. All the other, all the other religions or faith or philosophies have struggle, but no explanation. And we have a God who said, it is not good for my people to be separate from me. I will draw close to them and stand right in the middle of all their pain and all their suffering and everything that they experience. It's only Jesus that makes this meaningful. Suffering then becomes a powerful testimony in the face of the opulence of our world, the me-sitterness, suffering becomes meaningful and a testimony that there is another way than to be captive to that world system that leads to rot and to leads to death. There exists a people that says, as good as this world is, there is something better and more beautiful, than what, and, and I'm looking forward to that as my reward. And his name is Jesus, and his kingdom is coming with him. So what I want for all of us is to become the kind of people that looks at the brokenness of our world and doesn't grow cynical and our faith doesn't grow cold, but we develop this kind of persistent humility in the face of all of that because we truly have meaning in the midst of all the brokenness. And we have the solution. His name is Jesus, and his kingdom surely is coming with him. I want us to be the kind of people that can look at that and step into the middle of it and not offer platitudes and shallow statements, but step right into the middle of it, just like Jesus did. That's what he taught us, and that's, that's not just, you, you have to understand, that's not just what he taught us from afar, but that's what he led by example in doing, is that he stepped right into the middle of it. And so whether it's, whether it's you know, people cleaning up their, their lawns from a weekend uh, tornado scare, whether it's uh, gun violence, whether it's uh, orphan kids or, or uh, food instability in our, our school district, we have to be the kind of people that, yes, pray into that for God's solution, side solutions and then step into it as his hands and I know as, as trite as it sounds, and as, as his feet into the midst of that. That's the kind of people that I want us to be. So I'm gonna have the, the worship team come on up. Why don't you stand with me? I invite you this week to sit yourselves in the midst of this question. How is God working to form persistence and humility in my life? How is he working to form persistence? What hope have I given up on? What seed did God plant? And I just grew cold or cynical towards that. Maybe you need to pray into that again. Maybe you need to hope and to dream a bit more. Or humility. How is he developing humility in your, the character of Jesus Maybe there's something in your life that you need to surrender and say no to in order to, say, to give a greater yes to God. It could be a relationship that he wants you to, to either repair or, or transition in some way. 
It could be some something that gets in your way of following Jesus. You've, you've got to ask permission of whatever this thing is before you surrender to God. That is called an idol, and that's standing in the way. So this week, how can we embrace persistence and humility in the midst of where God has you? So let me pray for us. So Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And God, we ask, we ask for the movement of your spirit in, in our life. These two things, persistence, that never gives up, that presses into you, that follows you no matter what. God, give us more of that. And humility, the, the beauty and truth and goodness of Jesus in our own life. God, give us more of that. Help us to know, is there, is there a way to surrender to a greater depth to you? Is there a way that we can shout yes to you in our behavior? Jesus, give us more of that. God, we do see the, the brokenness of our, of our world, whether it's, a, it's, it's related to, to weather and hardship there, or it's related to tr national tragedy. war or, or sickness or any of those things, God, we see the brokenness, God, and we want to be the answer to that. God, as we lean into you, as we ask you for more of your grace, we want to be an answer to that. So would you help us? Help us to know how to be involved, how to be supportive, how to press into you and open our arms wide to others, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.